you get to decide the rules of how you live, how you interact with things. You know, I've walked away from things before where they didn't go my way, but I can say, you know what? I checked my boxes. I put in the effort. You know, I sought to be better. I got involved with mediation or whatever it was. I've done all the things I could have at that time. And maybe I look back and with new tools, new skills, I could have done better, but I walk away with my head held high and say, that's how I want to live my life. This is Superfast Business with James Schramko. James Schramko. Helping you build your business super fast. James Franco here. Welcome back to superfastbusiness.com. This is part three of what I think is a three-part series. We are knee-deep into this experiment here with Rob Hanley. G'day, Rob. G'day, mate. Thanks for having me back. Of course, we're going through your little business cheat sheet that you posted on social media that I saw and said, Rob, let's podcast about this. This looks fantastic. And in the previous episodes, in episode 761, and 762, we've been talking about this list. We're picking up today on the third installment. So if you haven't listened to 761 or 762, please go back and listen to that. So in terms of where we're up to in this sheet, last time we were talking about investing in people emotionally. So what comes after that? Yeah. So the next thing we're talking about or we're about to come to is about the rates at which cash flow, profit and revenue grow. And this has to do with company maturity, right? The first thing that needs to grow is revenue. That's always going to grow first in the life cycle of a company. But as revenue starts to grow, you should be becoming more efficient. So we were talking before about swapping from fixed expenses, variable expenses, and those things. So over time, as you build more revenue, your profit margin should be growing faster than your revenue is growing, right, as a relative base. And then finally, as your business matures, your cash flow should be growing faster than your profit's growing, which is growing faster than your revenue's growing. Because ultimately, the goal of a business is to have an asset and put cash in your pocket with it. That's it. Everything in between is details and whatnot. And I think at the moment, there's a big trend where people say, oh, you can't get rich you know, selling your time. Now, I am lucky in that you know, I provide a lot of value to my clients and I have very good clients and I can charge a lot of money for it relative to what other people do. But to my clients, it's a drop in the ocean. The reason for that is my time is my asset to sell and I can make that cash come in really quick. But then I have a bunch of cash. Now, I want to take that cash and make it make more cash. And it's that whole focus of at the end of the day, whatever that asset is, whether it's time, the business, money, anything... How do I make it get more cash flow off that asset? And how do I make that rate increase faster than my asset increases? And where do you sit in terms of reinvesting to scale versus taking money out to invest somewhere else? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. So the first person who really got into depth with me on this was a guy called Jeff Schneider. And Jeff is a real smart bloke. And he was talking to me about the biggest mistake people make is they don't understand risk exposure as a business owner. So I know a couple of business owners in Australia, and they say that it's a lot more challenging as an owner in a business to get a loan than it is as an employee. And they never understand. They're always like, well, how is it more risky? But the truth is that owning a business is centralizing your risk. So you need to take some out, take a little bit of money off the table, whether that's a retirement account or whether it's just buying into other businesses, diversifying your risk, at the same time reinvesting. So a conversation we had yesterday is once you're around the 15% profit margin, as you get above that beyond 20, and obviously there's exemptions to the rule and models and all this stuff is, if you're at 20%, you should be putting money back into the business, I believe, right? Once you hit your own personal goals in terms of finance, stop taking money out and grow the value of the business, the total enterprise value. Because if you have this system that can scale, and there's a calculation behind this called self-funded growth rates, then you should be doing it. You're increasing asset value. So that's my thought on when should you reinvest and when should you take. So take a bit of money off the table, invest the rest in growing. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as we're in a pandemic at time of recording where some businesses have been wiped and the owner hasn't taken stuff out and left it. 
other things to consider too, and of course you should speak to the relevant parties, whether it's your accountant or financial advisor or whatever. Yeah. In Australia, at least, by putting some money into superannuation, you can reduce the amount of tax that you would pay on that yeah. versus leaving it in the business. There's differences between the entities you hold it into or that you distribute to. And then, of course, some companies, as they get much bigger, can start taking advantage of being in different countries, you know, like your Googles and so forth, yeah. which is a fascinating thing in itself. Yeah, it's huge. That topic has not gone away. <laughs> no. At the minimum, at least, they're paying people, you know, staff, et cetera, and that money's going back into PAYE tax. But one of the beauties of having a business, it gives you quite a lot more flexibility in terms of when you pay your tax and, you know, like you have to do it quarterly in Australia, for example, and then you can distribute stuff at the end of the year versus when you're an employee, you're paying the tax on the fly all year long. Yeah. And so you've got not much leverage there. So, of course, yeah, it's balancing. The amount you want to have as a wage is going to dictate whether you get any benefits mm. from the government. It also will dictate if you can get a loan, if you're into that sort of thing. If you want to borrow for a personal thing, then you're going to need to show an income, etc. It's harder to get that loan yeah. for the business. Yeah. Right. So... Let's talk about prioritizing cash collection consistently. I feel like we touched on this in terms of timing for when we invoice, et cetera. We talked about yep. credit terms versus getting paid up front. Were there other things around that topic? Yeah, so some of the other ways is understanding, even on credit terms, everything from factoring invoices, like how do I get the cash in my bank today? Because cash today is worth more than cash a month from now. And this is that idea of the time value of money. You know, at what point? And I always use the same experiment with my clients or people who are looking to talk with me. I say, look, if I gave you $10,000 today or $100,000 a year, what would you prefer? All right, what about $10,000 today and $50,000, 10 and 20? And I eventually find that point where they go, oh, no, I wouldn't wait for that. And that just helps people understand that there is a point at which money in the future is more valuable. But man, money today is, you know, I'd take a discount to get it today. So for example, when I work with my clients, they have the option to pay me up front if they want and receive a professional discount for a year's worth of advisory. And that's okay. And if they do that, I will happily give them a professional discount because they simplify my business. I don't have to follow up. I don't have to have any overhead. I don't have any of these things. It just, it's done. And I'm always happy to give that because cash is better than no cash. Yeah, it's a classic. That's it. It's a little mantra, isn't it? Comes up a lot, obviously, with agencies. I've converted people to get paid up front. But with memberships, there's always this monthly, quarterly or annual billing. Yeah. There's pros and cons. You will usually discount an annual payment. However, you're getting a year's worth of retention. Yep. You've got one billing cycle each year. Downside is you've got to resell it a bit harder. Yeah. Like You have to remake the sale versus when you have the monthly. But I tell you something I've discovered by accident. When the pandemic hit, people who are on longer term payments didn't have the opportunity to just pull the pin and stop. Yeah. Like If they're paid out till August or September or October or December, then they're just still in the program, whereas all monthlies just unhitch in a lot of my clients' situations. Yeah. That was something we observed. So longer term customers can give you more consistency, even though it's not a consistent pay. Yeah. It's up to you, the business owner, to be disciplined with that money. Now, there's mm. different ways people account, right? They either account for the cash now or they actually have... I'm not sure the technical names that are accrual accounting, and I should because I did accounting. Yeah, accrual. Where you allocate it to yourself each month ongoing. Yeah. So you've got to have like a trust account where it's sort of dispersed yep. over time in your books. And one mistake we do see people make is they get the money, they blow it, and then they've still got to deliver on the service, but their service actually gets a little bit sloppy because they're stressed out and they're focused on the rat wheel of trying to get another customer. So just watch out for that little tra yeah. trap. 
This is a sidebar. I recommend that everyone moves to accrual accounting immediately. Even if your business is really cash billings both ways, still use accrual because it gives you that perspective of I'm matching my revenue and expenses to the time in which they're incurred. It just gives you such better clarity about your business. And then obviously you offset the realities with a cash flow statement. If you've never done it, guys, just do it. It definitely gives you a more accurate picture of what's actually happening. Like in my business, I might make sales for my annual event. I'll get 100 sales in 24 hours for my event. That will bring in $100,000. A few months down the track, I'll pay the event venue. That'll be forty-five dollars or $50,000. So there's a big lump coming in. There's this big lump going out. Yeah. If you just took my business on, you know, the month where the forty-five came out, you'd think, oh, you know, our profit margin is not that great this month. Yeah. Or if we look at only the month where the 100 came in, you'd think, wow, what an amazing business. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's a trap. You want to just make sure that you're allowing for it for the time period. I love that. Yeah. So moving on from that, we're sort of switching gears into automation. Yeah. Automation is great. But automating too early embeds dangerous mistakes. Yeah. Oh, I like this one. Yeah, this one to me is, you know, I've had a bunch of businesses that I've owned in the direct response space. Uh, you know, in the online world, we talked about Entreport before. So you set up these Entreport automations. And I think the mistake is somebody builds it and then it's done. And then I never have to look at it again. And they just let it go. But what happens is the longer you're in an industry or you're interacting or interfacing with customers, solving problems, all these things, you realize that you made a bunch of mistakes early on. Now, if you go into and go, oh, automation, set and forget, internet money, mailbox money, whatever you call it, you might get a little lazy and you start leaving a lot of money on the table. And it's about this idea of before you automate, I think I took this from Justin Brook, which was test, validate, scale. And I like the idea with automation. Test, validate, automate. Same idea is let me do it once. Let me validate those results. And if they're good, continue doing it, automate it. If they're subpar, don't automate it, make it better. And we started using this in one of the businesses that I was an owner in. I'd partnered on it to bring the marketing and sales expertise. And we set up this series of campaigns. It was like evergreen launches, sales, promotions, entry-level products, back-end products, because it was quite comprehensive. We had products that had 15 different modules that were hours on each. It was 160 hours of content. Like This was big professional stuff on a needed basis. But by making sure that we didn't automate immediately and then just leave it, but instead we built it piecemeal and improved it, I can tell you our first sales campaign was okay. Second sales campaign was pretty good. Third one, incredible. And if we just automated that first one with no changes, we would have left so much money on the table. And I think that's what I mean by dangerous mistakes. The other part of it that's dangerous is sometimes you have a product that you don't realize is costing you money. And if you've automated it and you're not keeping that finger on the pulse, like we talked about with the giraffe story of Graham Hart, if you're not keeping a finger on the pulse, these things will cost you money. So just make sure you're going through once a month, once a quarter, checking those automations. What am I not doing right? Where is it broken? Or there's this idea called pen testing. You can essentially take that concept of someone's coming in to try and break it and get someone else with fresh eyes to tell you where your baby sucks. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, a couple of things that reminds me of that saying that bad habits are bred in good times and good habits are bred in bad times. You know. Yeah. The story just then actually reminded me when I started buying ads on Amazon, the marketplace to sell my book. Yep. I did automate it for a while. There, it was losing money each week, and it just kept draining my Amex card a little bit. Yeah. Until I got it balanced out, I did a bit of peel and sticking and optimizing and putting some negative keyword phrases, and then I got it to be returning a positive ROI. Yeah. And I give some credit to Alan Dibb, who's got the one-page marketing plan. He put me onto that advertising platform. Yeah. If you have a book, it's good to advertise on the Amazon platform, and you can actually make a profit on the front end, yeah. which is amazing. So that's a good one. 
Also reminds me of that story of some guy who went around to a lady's house. He says, show me through your pantry. Okay, take me down shopping with you. Let's go and buy the stuff. Let's go back to your house now. Cook it. Show me what you've prepared. And then he went and made the app where people could source goods and get recipes and so forth. Huh. It's like that minimum viable product version. Yeah. I think it's talked about in the Lean Startup, the book. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to do the stuff manually and then automate it. Friends of ours like Dean Jackson have the nine-word email, and that is an amazing email to put in a card abandonment sequence, right? Yeah. It's a perfect spot to put it. You've got to do a couple of those manually in the beginning to get the hang of where you should put it and how you would automate it. And then I still like this idea of semi-automation. Yeah. When those things go out, I still manually answer them. Yeah. That's a hybrid of automation plus human. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. That human element, just as a quick side, is so important. Because the truth is, when you start a business, or even when you've had the business for a while, your map, your understanding of the landscape is always improving. You're always understanding more about the features, the terrain, the details. You cannot tell me that someone who has been running a specific business for 30 years doesn't have an infinitely greater amount of information than someone who's just started the same business, same industry. If that person who's just started or is nascent in their journey tries to automate to that same level, it's not going to happen. So embrace the hard part. You know, the gym I used to train at in Texas would always talk about embracing the suck. Just embrace the suck for a little bit, but you're going to gain so much data that you can leverage. I used to think about that when I was carting bricks as a laborer for a while there and using a shovel. I'm thinking this is giving me an appreciation for what a fair day's work for a fair day's pay might look like. What can you expect from people and what is a difficult job compared to the job I have now? I have an easy job compared to what that was. So it sort of leads into the next one. Expense walks on two legs. Yeah. So I took this one from Felix Dennis, who was the founder of Dennis Publishing. He had a book called How to Get Rich. And it's probably one of the most bastardy, honest books on making money. Everyone tells you it's easy, it's fun, it's great. He has a section which is like, you're going to have to work so hard that you know your friends hate you, your partner despairs, your enemies fear you. Like That's what it takes to be stupidly wealthy. And it's okay not to want that, but it's not a fantasy. It's not easy. It's going to require some real ticker. He's got some great advice in that book, and I think it's a great reality check for everyone who, we've mentioned this in the last episode, the overnight success, overnight riches, it's super easy, push one button. Felix is a bit like, no, that's bullshit. This is what it looks like. And he has this great line, which is that overhead walks on two legs, or expense walks on two legs. It is very easy as a business grows to want to get lazy. Right. And I think we all have this desire as humans, right? Our goal is to consume more energy than we put out so that we survive. It's very natural. It's biological. Then we want to hire people. But that expense comes with a big price tag. And I had this very interesting chat with my sister a little while ago. We were talking about the wage gap. And I was talking to her and she was explaining to me this perspective I've never heard of and I loved it, which is that there is the natural argument people make is, well, if women get paid less, then why don't all companies just hire more women? And she made this point about the overhead that's not accounted for in management. And I love that because if you have six people and a manager, if that's your rough structure, the more people you hire, the more managers you need. That's how it works. So it's not just that you're going to hire one person, but you're also hiring one sixth of a manager for every person you hire. That's how it roughly works. So always asking yourself with your employees before you hire them, can I do this with technology? Can I do this myself? Can I do this with a partner? Can I find other ways to not incur that expense until I know that it is a really profitable path. Yeah, I love it. Small teams are good. Like as you get to a larger team, the complexity in communication can be very, very bad. 
Uh, like in um, Amazon, they talk about being able to feed a team with one pizza. Yeah, I love that rule, the pizza rule. I sort of rolled that into having pods of three. We have three people in little teams. Yep. And that way, if one person's away, the other two can sort of fill in. You know, they do half each instead of a third each. Yeah. And they can each take turns at sort of leading that little pod. But we used to have this sort of discussion around when we had salespeople and then sales managers, is the sales manager selling or not? Mm. And that's really when you're talking about the sales manager's wage. If they're not selling, if they're only managing the sales team, then you have to divide their wage across the whole sales department. Yeah. Because they're not a direct sort of income for their role. They're indirect. They go through their sales team. Yeah. And that's often more powerful because it's very accountable to have that type of role. And when people try and pay their sales manager and have the sales manager sell plus manage, it's pretty easy for the sales manager to be a bit selfish and try and cherry pick the good deals and stuff. So so many dynamics around this. But when I sit down with my clients and we look through their expenses, you can bet almost all the time the biggest expenses are going to come down to marketing or salaries, like wages and overheads. So remember that uh, you have to try and peg an income back to each role, each function. That's why when we're talking about in the last episode, having KPIs and metrics that everyone can contribute to, you can actually start working out, you know, what is your revenue per person in the business? What is each person contributing to growing that revenue? Yeah. And uh, it's a good one. So let's talk about communicating value to command higher prices. Yeah. I'm really excited about it because there's a couple of lines here which are all sales oriented. You know, this is where I cut my teeth. You know, I was a door-to-door essentially, you know, in the supermarket, not supermarket, uh, shopping center, sales guy. That was like my first real eat what you kill kind of experience. And I've learned through that and in my own following experiences that you have to communicate to someone the value. Now, if I go to you, go to some stranger on the street and say, hey man, like here's my fee, pay it to me. Okay, well that fails to list off a copy thing that we spoke about earlier. So let's say I go to the right guy, you know, he owns a business in the right size, in the right condition. Okay, and I said to him, right, here's my fee. Okay, but why am I going to pay that? Okay, well, let's talk about, you know, what are your problems and what pain can I relieve for you? Might that return look like? How's that going to show up in your financials? How's that going to impact in your life? And by communicating the value that you provide to their life, or rather, here's the problem, here's the solution, look how much better your life is, or before and after, that's what I mean by communicating value. But it doesn't just stop there in the transformation. It's also about the details. How much time and energy did you put in to come up with this solution? How many people have you worked with already? What kind of technology is this based on? And there's a, a bread brand actually here in Portugal that I love, Gleba Bread. And the owner has gone back and studied certain agricultural methods for creating bread, older ones, quote unquote, forgotten methods. It's a great story. The value is in the quality. I mean, this bread is incredible. The value is in the story itself of, oh, look, I have this special bread. I can tell a story. And because these things are communicated all the way down to where does the wheat come from, I'll pay a higher price. The value has been communicated versus going to the supermarket and says, hey, you know, buy a loaf for a dollar. No, thanks. And that's what I really mean is you must communicate that value. I had someone visit my webpage yesterday and said, oh, wow, this is all new and improved. And yeah. Smart guy. Because I had put some effort into design and I'd put some effort into the sales copy. Yeah. The two areas I focused on because I want to communicate the value. Like I know I can help someone if they fit my criteria, but I have to be able to help them see that. Yeah. It fits really well with my definition of selling. Like it's the process of change from one situation to a better alternative situation. And I think our main role as a business owner or marketer or salesperson is to create the environment where it's very obvious to the person they will be better off. And that is done via communication. Yeah. So... 
such a good point. Really sweet spot for me too. <laughs> Get it. Yeah. My oldest son just uh, closed his first sale in his brand new job and he's very excited. And it, yeah. He's been talking to me recently about how he's just realized that a lot of the things we talked about when he was a kid were preparing him for this moment in his life. That awesome. He's been inducing this sales knowledge, like taking it in almost subconsciously in everyday conversations and me sort of passing on the benefit of all the things I've read, yeah. but without him realizing that he's sitting on this superpower and it's just unleashing now, which just so exciting that's great so i think he's a good communicator let's talk about the best testimonial structure i love this one before and after mechanism it's bam b-a-m i do not remember where i got this from you know if you've been listening to this podcast you know that james and i both sort of like to pay um, respect to where we got an idea from where it came from because we stand on the shoulders of giants really i wish i could tell you where this came from but it is great what was it like before oh you know before i met rob the business was struggling, you know, we were making millions on millions, but we we're barely putting any cash out. But now the business is still making millions. I'm putting nearly a million in cash in my pocket every year. The immediate response for someone is like, oh, how'd you do that? What happened? You've created this contrast and someone wants to know what was the bridge. And that's when you introduce the mechanism because you're not selling the mechanism. You're saying, look at the transformation. Oh, by the way, here's how it happened. And it feeds into curiosity. So when you ask someone for a testimonial, you know, my basic structures are, you know, what was it like before? What's it like after? What was the mechanism? But the only other thing I like to put in there, which is what were your doubts? Oh, you know, like when I first met Rob, I wasn't sure. Like it's, uh, you know, it's an expensive fee, but he was well supported. I was a little nervous, but he guaranteed his fee and he said he's never had to give it back. So I wasn't in a tight spot, but I recognized the value. And now, boy, am I glad I did it. Bang, bang, bang. And it's all because I hired him. And when you have that structure, when you ask those questions, and you can do it through text or verbal or back and forth, whatever, it just makes such an impact to the structure of your testimonials. It makes sense because it's more or less the demonstration of how someone will be better off. Mm -hmm. A few key points around this would be pick testimonials that are representative of your audience. Yeah. Like if you've got a guy that looks like Rob, let's say I've got Jesse Elder on my website and then Rob, <laughs> Rob Hanley comes along oh, and yeah. he sees his, you know, Jesse saying this or that and that Rob will go, oh, this guy's a bit like me. Like, you know, he looks a bit like me. So we want to find demographics and representative people. Be careful of testimonial in terms of the words. Some people put that on their site. I don't like to use the word so much. It might be more like, um, you know, let's hear from our clients or whatever, or success stories, etc. And we use this similar structure for a whole podcast called Sales Marketing Profit, Taki Moore and I. Yeah, yeah. He had this great framework and it was pretty much like, where was someone at when they sort of came to us? What was their problem? What did that problem mean? And like, how bad was it? And then what change happened? Like, what was the new result? And what things caused that? What was the prescription? What advice would they have for someone else about to go through the same situation? That's usually mm. a very prescriptive call to action. And that podcast was very successful. People loved it. It was real people too. I mean, it's just hard to beat that level of proof when you've got actual people getting transformations. And yeah. so that's why we layer it all over our website, even on our cart page. If you don't have a testimonial on your cart page, then put one there too, because that's a great place to put it. It's huge. And also in the shopping cart abandonment follow-up, I've got a video of someone who joined and got an instant result. And he just sent me this unsolicited video, which I've now put into my autoresponder sequence. I love it. I love it. There's a really good point there of the testimonial and car page. So one of the deals that I was building, we ran traffic to a page. So we, you know, we sorted out great sales pages working, fantastic. But there's a massive drop off on the car page. You know, you put in best practices, but you always got to doubt them. I noticed that the car page, exactly this, it didn't have testimonials. We popped them on. And I think 
it tripled the completion rate. And then you can ask yourself, right, who's left and why are we getting so many people there? What's the issue? Where have we failed in communicating value? But just seeing it triple in that result, God, who wouldn't like three times more money? That's it. And it helps if it's the result that that person on the page wants. Yeah. So you pick one that works. That's it. <laughs> this next part, I'm really, uh, you know, I think this is fun. The best sales copy structure, pain, agitation, solution. Yep. It's a pass formula. Yeah. This is a classic, right? There's a lot of stuff. Like I put a video on Instagram a little while ago talking about, you know, market sophistication and stages of awareness and all this stuff. A lot of the time, you just need someone to use a structure, pain agitation solution, because it shows you that you understand where they're at. What's the pain? What's the pain point? And then you talk about the agitation. How is this affecting them? What's making it bad? Dan Kennedy used to say, putting your finger in the wound and wiggling it around to make it hurt. But it's really just saying, like, I get it. Like, you know, you've gone through a divorce and that was really hard. Now you're worried about your future and your ability to start dating again. Are you broken and all these things? And that's making your date self-esteem and that's showing up at work and your relationship with your kids and all these things. Someone who reads that is going to say, okay, you've taken the time to understand not just what I'm going through, but the implications of that. Because, sorry, you'll agree with this, I think, that most people, when they come to you to solve a specific problem, they're not solving it to solve that problem. They're solving it to solve the onflowing effect, you know, the upstream or downstream impact of, oh, I've got low self-esteem. That's really not what they're trying to solve for. They're trying to solve dating or they're trying to solve the ability to provide whatever it is. And that's when you shift to the solution. And I think what's great is if you do a great job of creating this context, the solution is a very natural response. You can say, listen, you know, there are a lot of ways you can address your self-esteem in dating. But what I've found is that there are really three things you need to know. And you just start describing the solution, you know, the quote unquote, what I got for you. And you know, once you learn these three things, here's what I'll do for you. And if you want to get it, just click here and purchase. And it's such a natural dialogue. Now, some people are obviously very unethical and they really manipulate and abuse this. And I think that's a really key point to bring up. You and I are pretty strong on ethics. We were talking before about the importance of representing your offers properly, being accurate, not making people feel like they're being taken for a ride, respecting your customer, not overdoing it. I believe that this is the same thing with pain agitation solution. Be respectful. Think of yourself like a doctor. Mm, I noticed this is the issue. Does it hurt when I press here? Okay, here's what we should do. Love it. Look, it's so similar. The formula that I grew up on since about 1993 was spin selling. Mm, Neil Rackham. Yeah, and you literally use the word implications, which is the I in there. Yeah. And it's pretty much the same. It's just got the S part in the beginning, I suppose, which is the current situation. Yeah. And that's just meeting people where they're at and really showing that you know where they are. Because if you want to help someone be better off, it's good to know the before part. And this was really critical for me when I was at Mercedes-Benz, because if you want to sell a car, you have to buy the car they've got from them. So that's their before situation is what they've got. Mm. And then you need to know, obviously, whatever they've got now is not serving its purpose anymore. There's a problem. Yeah. And the implications of that problem is pretty much the agitation part so the problem is the pain implications is the agitation and the solution is the same yeah it's and it stands for needs solution yeah it's a bit awkward but same formula i've used that for many many years in all sorts of communications whether it's telephone sales pages training calls it's just such a simple formula that you can roll around i would suggest anyone listen to this read the book spin selling if you're selling anything yeah. high ticket items the most current up-to-date researched version of which Neil Rackham wrote the forward for of a sales book is The Challenger Sales Method. Great book. Yeah, so that's uh, probably enough on that topic. We, yeah. could, we could do a three-part series on just that. Probably, yeah. Start with what you've got, solve what's in front of you. Yeah. What's in front for you. So it's, yeah, so there's probably a little misspelling there. It's probably meant to be of. But, uh, I'm, just, I'm just modifying your document here. <laughs> So the idea behind this, right, is similar to effectual reasoning, which we spoke about before. 
but it's also about understanding gating solutions and about being realistic with where you're at. So I had a coffee with someone this morning. I'm looking at expanding my consulting into different countries. And there are some countries which I recognize based on what's happening in the world right now, this pandemic economic crisis, that my skill set, my knowledge base, my frameworks are going to be very valuable, but I can't speak the languages. Now, if I'd gone there with just one pitch and this is all I'm going to do, bang, 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 well, that's just stupid. But I sat down there and I was like, I've got these tools and I'm here and I'm just open to what's coming up. And then that presents the gating problems, the barriers, the friction points that if you try and jump 15 steps ahead, forget about it. Just solve what's in front of you. I know that everyone responds to goals differently, but this is almost the difference between I'm going to feed 6 billion people and I'm going to research kelp. That's it. You just you start with the first thing. The 6 billion people's a North Star, but maybe you look into kelp and seaweed and maybe you look into an alternative, but just solve the problem in front of you with the resources you have. Yeah, I mean, that's it in a nutshell, but it's really about reminding yourself that some people are motivated by big, giant goals. And while I find them useful as a North Star, the entire period of my life, James, where I pursued a big, hairy, audacious goal and I, I fought for it, it gave me white knuckles, a lot of frustration, a lot of stress. And when I sat back and I started going, okay, just where am I now? What's next? I'm walking on the path. Where am I now? What's next? I think it can create a lot of anxiety in people if they set huge aspirations and they're just constantly missing them. And we talked about that with OKRs the other day. So it also is probably good to inform someone in the software game, you know, like they don't want to get feature creep before they start rolling out the first version. You just got to lock it in sometimes and just roll with what you've got or it'll get ahead of you. Yeah. And it also speaks to perfectionists who need to have all their ducks lined up and in a row before they move the first thing. Yeah. It's just better to get in motion because one thing that I've really discovered over and over again is that whatever you start with is not where you're going to end up. I'm not doing exactly what I did when I started online. I started and then I iterated and changed and moved. I really hate the word pivot, but I guess you'd say you will change direction a few times because change really is the constant. So just start now, solve what's in front of you. Very, very good. In line with that, you're talking about getting a support network and speak to them often. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. It's such a critical thing. Entrepreneurship, being evaluated, whatever, you don't do it in a vacuum. You are going to get stressed. And if you feel really stressed, yes, you need to manage your team and give feedback and all these things. There are going to be days where you just want to implode the whole thing. Just be done. And you need people you can just vent to. It is healthy to vent. Get that shit out of your system because sometimes you verbalize it. And uh, as Emma Pratt, who owns a great clinic called Nala Hub on the northern beaches, she talks about this idea of name it to tame it. And it is incredible. Uh, The research backs it up. The woman who was the basis for the psychologist in the TV show Billions has a book called Market Mind Games. She talks about this as well, is when you label an emotion, when you verbalize it, when you write it down, it loses its impact because you've you've made tangible and structured. So if you are going through business, first of all, it's about getting rid of the lows. Let's process those together. And the second thing is, there is stuff that we just don't know. Stop trying to do it all yourself. Craig Ballantyne, I've mentioned him before, has been a great resource for me. He's helped me a lot. Matt Smith, who we mentioned before, all these different people that we draw help from, they're our support network. And it's really important to get them both on a personal level and a professional level. I'll have to invite Matt Smith on this podcast. Oh, you need to. You need to. I think I've had almost all the other people we've mentioned from Craig Ballantyne right through to Justin Brooke on the show already. Yeah. But Matt Smith would be a great guest. So Matt, if you're listening to this, give me a call, buddy. Uh, I'm going to text him. We're going to make him get on the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, I think it would be great. Yeah. He actually helped me a lot early on when he was. He used to be a domain flipper. He used to buy and sell yep. domains. I still sell domains that I bought 10 years ago from my original seed of what I learned from him. So there you go. 
Yeah, look, I think it's important to talk it out. Yep. Guys, especially, you need to talk it out. I think women are wired to gossip and talk and socialize. Some guys like to sort of bottle it up a bit. Yep. I surround myself with people who will let me vent, especially I've got a surfing buddy. We go out sometimes, we paddle out. And my main goal is just to make him laugh with my crazy stories of how chaotic <laughs> things can get. Yeah. And as chilled as people might think I am and as calm as I am, I think that comes from being able to let stuff out. I'm the kind of person that just wants to deal with it immediately and let it out. I don't want it to build up like hot air in a balloon and float me away. Yeah. I don't want that toxin, you know. I just want to suck it out and get on with it. Yep. Especially in my field because I'm talking to a lot of business owners who have major problems. Yeah. <laughs> right? If you're worried about your shit, you can't solve that. I'll never forget I used to have this kinesiologist once who died of cancer. Yeah. And I think she probably just took on everyone's crap and just didn't have her own release. Yep. So if you're in a, any kind of field where you're dealing with a lot of poison and toxin, you need an outlet. And you talk about having a therapist in the previous episode and it's a good investment. So yeah. probably not much to expound on that one. The only thing I would just make a quick side note though is, look, even therapists have therapists. Psychologists have psychologists. You mentioned before, like blokes bottle it up. And I think that's true, especially Australian males. We know for a fact that it's a real part of our culture. There is strength in sharing. The therapist that I always recommend to people is a guy called Niels Barron's. He's a virtual therapist. You can look him up, Barron's Psychology. But even if he's not the right fit for you, find someone who is. Give it a crack. You're probably going to, like anything when you start out, feel a little ashamed like an idiot, like you're doing it wrong. That's okay. Totally normal. The dividends, as you said, James, it's getting it out. It's just processing it. Maybe it won't be a therapist. Maybe it'll be yoga. Maybe it'll be surfing. You and I spoke about the value of surfing for dealing with shit. It just works. So, yeah, that's probably the only part I'd add to that. It's definitely changed my life more than anything ever. Uh, I had a good episode with Nam Baldwin. He talked about neat. Mm -hmm. Setbacks are normal. Expect it. Accept it and then tidy up mentally. That was the acronym. Ooh, I like that. Spoke with Pete Shaw recently. He's, he's great with the mindset stuff about getting little hinges that swing the big doors for you, knowing what type of person you are. Like if you're a pressure person and you don't set deadlines, you'll probably never get anything done and wonder why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thought that was really interesting. Yeah. I also believe Marissa Peer's work is quite good in terms of the more traditional sort of therapy stuff yeah. that actually gets good results. So there you go. Oh, gosh, this has to be one of my favorite topics. High recurring revenue, 75% plus. Bingo. Yeah. Plus fixed cost leverage, plus cash billings, plus CapEx under 10% is the definition of heaven. Now, this is sort of like an aspirational goal, I think, is there are limitations within industry and model and all this stuff. But if you can have 75% of your business as recurring revenue, right, if you seek that, and that can be payment plans. It really can. It can be payment plans. And then you can add a membership site, which is what your expertise is, James. And you've got stuff coming out on that. Well, let's look at my business and see if it qualifies. Okay. What's your percentage? Recurring revenue? Yep. It's about 99%. Awesome. The only non-recurring revenue things we have is a Maldives trip once a year, yep. my live event once a year, and now some standalone products on super fast results. But that's just early days. I've started and it's not perfect yet. Sure. But it's in the 90s. Awesome. Okay. So you're in the 90s, which is great. Now, the reason as a sidebar that that's so important is sustainability and predictability. It's lowered risk. It's diversified risk. It just makes it better. How about 100K per month yep. for over 10 years straight? Killing it. Now, if you just look at that. I'll virtually never hear of that. Yeah. And that's because I think most people are chasing the quick fix or the quick change. And look, some of it's knowledge. Maybe no one's ever said to you that this is a great idea. But now you know. If you listen, you can pursue it. I do have a lot of books, but they're not in my garage. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, and my books in my garage. Of course, that's where you keep them. <laughs> I, th- I think the next one is the fixed cost leverage, though, is because yeah. recurring revenue is good. Yeah. But if your recurring revenue is tied to variable costs, you're not getting ahead. You're just yeah. scaling the same cancer, the same problem. True. This is where fixed cost leverage is. So I know that you're a big fan of 10x Pro, right? Yep. It has that basis built in for it that it's a fixed cost. Yeah, it's like 300 bucks a month. Laughing. And if you go and have, say, for simple math sakes, 10 people paying you 30 bucks, it's still 300 a month. Yep. If you have 30,000 people paying you 10 bucks a month, we're talking about massive leverage. I think a lot of people don't understand the importance of these certain expenses are essentially an asset that you're renting. How do you get a return off that? One of the things I get people to do is look at their P&L, and I'm happy to give this one away, is connect each expense to the revenue it generates, directly or indirectly. And if it cannot be there for acquiring a customer or retaining a customer, what's it doing there? Yeah, good one. What's it doing there? In my case, my biggest cost is wages, which is more or less fixed. Which is awesome. Then you can leverage it, right? I only have small variable costs. Like, you know, if if a few extra people listen to this podcast, my Amazon S3 bill might go up $3 for the month. (sighs) Going to break the bank. But, you know, my website fees are more or less fixed. My subscriptions are more or less fixed. I don't run much paid traffic except for the Amazon one. However, it's cash flow positive. So the more I spend, the more I make on that one. So it actually, it tracks pretty well in terms of feeding that front line. So I'm happy with, so far, cash billings. We don't have any credit terms in my business. Yep. Everything's paid up front. If you can do that in your business, it is such a win. And I think seeking to find ways to get people to pay you faster, share as close to cash billings as possible, whether that means bribing the head of the payments department at your supplier, uh, sorry, uh, your vendors, so that you say, hey, look, you know, here's a Starbucks gift card, here's an Amazon gift card, really appreciate anything you can do to move it ahead getting uh, paid on their company credit card. And some smart companies, they say, you know, pay your bill by this date, you pay this rate, yep. pay it later, you pay extra. I've, I've introduced that for a few of my agency clients where they do have big customers. Yep. If anything, I actually get paid in advance because if I sell an event, yep. I get paid before the event. So you thought it's got referred to as a negative cash flow cycle. Yes. Uh, most people are, you know, negative numerical cash flow cycle because you get the money well before it goes out. Yeah. Ripper. I mean, I sleep better at night, honestly. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, CapEx, under 10%. I'm interested in what that means. Yeah, so CapEx is capital expenditure. Essentially, what are you doing in plants, property, equipment, assets that you're acquiring to generate revenue from? And what it really means is that if you're able to keep your CapEx that low at just 10% or less, it means that you're getting better and better at what we talked about earlier, turning your assets into revenue. And this is it. This is the whole point. You know, you keep coming back to fundamentals. So what's that in my business? Uh, so yours yours will be interesting because it's a software primarily. It'd be the key part of development, if anything. But you might have zero CapEx. You're not really developing things except your training products, but they're done in you know a short period of time and there's not enough time. So that's me buying a course or? Uh, no, because that would probably fall under accounting standards as education, yeah. training, development. Yep. It does. By CapEx, for software, would be the development of an internal-based tool for use within the company. So if you've built your own project management system from scratch... Oh, man, I'm an off-the-shelf sort of a guy. Honestly, as a quick sidebar, 99% of things, just do it off-the-shelf. Yeah. Like, I'm looking into, if you're tracking potential uh, deals in real estate and business acquisition here, because like, I want to buy or partner on businesses which are distressed, which means like a lot of people start talking to you. I originally kept a track of this with a piece of paper and a pen. And I tell you, it just, it grows and it gets too big because a lot of people end up being nothing, but you've just filled up a piece of paper. 
Go use Trello or Airtable or an Excel spreadsheet. It doesn't matter. Just someone's already solved that problem. Don't try and make it fancy. Almost everyone I know with their own bespoke in-house custom software, especially for memberships, they say the thing owns them. They have to hire a chief yeah. technical officer. Right? It's crazy. Talking 120 grand a year for someone to run this beast that's costing them a fortune. Like yeah. When you can buy stuff off the shelf. I do have a couple of custom tools, right? I've got a membership modeling calculator. I've got a effective hourly rate calculator. I've got a 16-word sales letter script. But my friend Dave Wooding makes those things for me. He's just yep. a, he's a genius. And I, I help him out a little bit with some coaching. So it nets out. Net positive for both of you. Yeah, it's yeah. not a big expense. Yeah. So next one. So I'm in heaven. Equity. <laughs> You're in heaven. So shall we talk about equity then? Equity is cheap today. And expensive tomorrow. Now, this is an interesting one, right? There's a little nuance to this is... When you're starting a business from scratch, you don't have a lot of capital typically. So you're trying to, oh, how do I get this funded? And the truth is, don't. Just go and sell as much as you can. Sell the idea. I think it was Dane Maxwell on the foundation talking about getting people to pay for the development, but it still comes down to sales first. But a lot of people try and solve that problem with equity. Now, I take equity positions, right? Now, I know you and I differ a little bit on our philosophy on these things, but I like equity positions. It's skin in the game. It keeps me focused a little more than royalties might at times, depending on the business. But for the most part, the context is, if you're just using equity because you don't have cash, it's going to be very expensive in the future. If you're using equity to get someone aligned, that's actually beneficial. But knowing the difference between those two things is don't just go get a partner to give away half your company for no reason. That's silly. Oh, my God. The 50-50 deal is the curse of newbies. Oh, I've made it before and I regretted it. I've done it. I did it so often in the beginning. I, yep. I set up all these 50-50 deals. Most of them didn't work the one that did work yeah. was very expensive. Yeah. I sent half a million dollars off to Sweden for my first proper membership, you know, for four years yeah. because I went 50-50 and in, in hindsight, I didn't need to. And when I switched, I tripled my profit by adjusting that arrangement. So it was yeah. awkward and it was a mistake that I was able to rectify and I've certainly saved a lot of other people from it. But the most common reason for people to do a 50-50, if you want to boil it down, it'll come down down to a lack of responsibility. They're secretly hoping the other person will do the work or they're just not taking responsibility to do the hard thing that you need to do. In my case, the hard thing would have been to research software solutions and to just set the first funnel up. Yep. And I paid heftily for someone else to do that for me. I think there's a really good point on that, which is responsibility. There's a methodology that I've used people before, which is this idea of slicing the pie, equity earning, equity vesting. If you don't know about equity, don't give it away. If you don't understand it, it can be partitioned out over time in line with hitting key targets. Don't give it away. Just work through it and then learn about it before you give it away. And the exception to that is skin in the game. You know, there's a reason that most turnaround guys get a piece of the company is because without them, the company's dead. That's a good deal. You know, I'd much rather have 50% of something alive, kicking and growing than 100% of something that's about to die. Yeah. I mean, I, I see those shows where people go and pitch their company and they need investors. I've never needed an investor for any of my businesses, yeah. which is good. And even with the rev share model that I've got, I don't have to put money in yep. anymore because I've got distribution and I've got knowledge and I can grow them a bigger business than what they bring to me. And they get, you know, 90% of the upside, which is great. Yeah. So it's whatever works. What about teams when there's a team there and you're trying to golden handcuff at a top performer? I see this one a fair bit. You know, clients ask me about it all the time. And yeah. it is one thing where I differ from Ricardo Semler, the way I run my business, than what he's done. But a lot of the other things he's done, I like and have introduced. Yeah. So 
What's your take on that? Well, I think it's contextual. I spoke with a woman many years ago, and she was quite high up at a major financial institution in Australia. And she was actually complaining about dissatisfaction as a result of those golden handcuffs. I mean, they're handcuffs for a reason. And I think this is the kicker is there are always arguments for and against. And I think it comes down to the person and the context. Now, if I give you, James, equity in, say, uh, the investment vehicle that I set up. Thank you. I, I want... I, oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Guys, this is not a verbal contract. Not a verbal contract. I said, if, if, if. <laughs> but if, if I give you that, I want something in return for that. But there is that risk of resentment. Like ownership. You're going to want to own a piece of me. I, yeah. I'm going to have... Could end up with a job-like um, function. Pound of flesh. That might not appeal to me. And I think that's the issue is that people, uh, again, it, this is, I think, the value that you and I provide as coaches to our clients is clarity in a confusing and volatile and uncertain world. A lot of people don't understand the difference between ownership and a job. And if you give them equity, they don't necessarily get that. Or if you are given equity, maybe the person giving it to you doesn't understand ownership versus a job. And there's a value adds. And there's the classic one. Like I've been offered a lot, as I imagine you are, people are often offering me a piece of their business to do it, but almost always... They've got pretty much nothing there. And so (laughs) the big deal with equity is you've got to be able to realize that there's a lot of illiquid equity going around. Like, I do have equity stakes in some businesses where I know I'll never get a cent. It's illiquid. No one's going to buy my piece of equity. The business might not survive or be sold, et cetera. In fact, I I own a bit of equity in a pest control company that I helped a guy out from about 10 years ago. They gave me some equity and I haven't even spoken to them for about five or six years. Have you ever received a check from that equity or not? No. Yeah. You see, and in fact, I know another guy who got a slice of equity as an advisor to a company, and then the company just quietly shoved their assets out into some other little business vehicle, sold off the uh, main thing, and just shafted him. So, equity is an interesting one. You've got to be able to get the money out. Yeah. It can be a massive compromise for whoever's getting the equity because it does tie them in. Yep. And it also can be a little more complex in terms of of legal structure and paperwork and liability. That's one major reason why I avoid it. Yeah, you've mentioned that. Yeah, so I'm going to be doing a book on revenue shares. I suppose it's my own podcast. I should mention that to my audience. I'm going to do a book and a course on revenue shares. Excellent. We're putting a course up on super fast results, but the book will just go into more detail. I'm going to dredge through all my stuff, make a brand new course on it and talk about the pros and cons. But from what I've seen from the discussions going on, as you know, I've been educating myself on all the other ways people do it. Yeah. I think most people haven't figured out how to get around the difficult parts, and I feel like I probably have. Yeah. Let's talk about build a cash strong balance sheet. So pretty obvious from our discussions, we do like having a strong cash position. Yeah. So this is about, you know, essentially liquidity. Or, you know, how are you able to pay off your liabilities when they come through now? And how long, this is a common thing, how many months worth of expenses should we have on hand? I'm a big believer that it depends on the, again, you, know, you hear me beat this drum, context, <laughs> context, context, right? Like a construction company is going to need a much different one. Oh, come on, just give us the answer. Right? Oh, I can't, mate. I can't. I'd be doing you a disservice. So here's the thing. There's some rules of thumb. If you are a software company, you can probably have six months. I think six months is in a software company based on margin, et cetera. Six is good because it means that... Well, the pandemic's been going for six months. Yeah. Right. Now, imagine that your software company dried up. Yeah. You've got yourself... Because a cash on balance sheet gives you time. I have a client whose software company was... Dried up. Get this. His software is for trade shows to help point of sale lead collection. Oh, that hurts. It does hurt. That hurts. Did you have a cash strong balance sheet? You know, I forgot to mention this in the last episode, yep. but you remember you were talking about how you were planning, and I think it was February? Yep. 
back in February. Really early on? Yep. Same for me. Like, this is the first week of March. I said to him, we have to do something radically different because this is not going to change for a long time and people don't realize that yet. Yeah. And he's now built webinar software for virtual trade shows. Love it. So for every one of his clients who isn't going to a physical trade show, they still need to sell stuff. Yep. So he's created a really interactive, feature-rich webinar platform for trade shows. So that's uh, actually ties back. And you know, again, we mentioned this at the start of the first episode 761 is this like more a gag oh good reference i got you you could be up for future gigs with that level of talent i got you mate i got you i have to look it up (laughs) (laughs) so it's about understanding that a lot of the data in here and the ideas here are contextual and that that they they're like a galaxy right it's a bunch of stars and you want advisors like the reason i have a yoga teacher is because she sees things i don't i can't read the label from inside the jar i can't do brain surgery on myself as you said so when it comes to things like this is it's that effectual reasoning going back to start with where you're at, where you've got and solve those problems. You helped him identify here's where he was at and here's what's coming. What problems does he need to solve? He didn't start out saying, I'm going to make a webinar software for trade shows. He realized that the tide was shifting, the context changed, he was ruthless in his assessment of his operating environment, and then he adapted. I can't beat the drum on that enough. I did a briefing in, uh, must have been March, I think March, it was called Adapt or Die. And this has been done to everything from the British, Portuguese Chamber of Commerce to Stephen Kotler's uh, audience. I've moved it around to a couple of different people. But the the thing is, it always comes back to is what is happening, what is going to happen, how do you position yourself? And the best way to be able to do that is to have fuel, which is cash. The big lesson in that for me was that client was paid up for quite some time and they didn't have the option to just panic and pull the pin and disappear. And the help I gave him has been critical. And a few months later, we reviewed because, you know, as we're recording this, we're just about in August. Yep. So we said, you know, how was our predictions? How was our theory? He said, unbelievably accurate. It's like exactly what we thought because we knew. I think because you and I... You know, we have a global audience of our catchment, contacts all around the place. We do get a lot of data points that other people miss, especially if they're just looking at their local news station. I thought about this today. This is a bit profound. I was surfing at my local beach here, and my other friend who lives just one suburb away was surfing his local beach. But all year long, my beach, the waves are about twice as big as his waves because of the direction my beach faces. So even being one kilometre apart, for our friends overseas, like less than a mile apart, (laughs) right, we can end up over a year having completely different experiences and completely different skill sets. He's used to surfing crowded out small mush, and I'm used to surfing bigger, more sort of intense waves, and I'm just one beach along. So that's a guy in the same country, same language, same currency, almost everything the same except for that one thing, and the the difference will be significant. So imagine this guy in his little cocoon, he gets this outside perspective of what I'm seeing, and we've nailed it, and uh, it it was a good situation. I like to have years' worth of expenses available. In fact, I love it. I want to be at the point where I can just stop working and that's it. Yep. And I feel like I may actually be close to that, but I definitely do not want to be looking for the next customer to pay for my food. And, you know, people get themselves into that shape. And if you're in that shape right now, you know, I used to be a little more hand to mouth when I was an employee, like all employees spend every single cent of their wage as it comes or just beforehand. The average person in Australia has a debt of several thousand dollars to a credit card. Yep. So almost everyone's living behind. Yeah. So pay yourself first, spend less than you earn, 
get a bit sensible. I mean, we've already talked about so many things that can help you in terms of the cash flow timing, in terms of the business model, what you're shooting for, in yeah. terms of expense walks on two legs, etc. Yeah. All right, so let's just keep going because what about your balance sheet isn't your self-worth? Uh, this is a Keith Cunningham classic. Keith Cunningham is a guy who I went into a course of his two years ago, I read some of his material. Now, those who aren't aware of him, his background was he pops up at Tony Robbins' Business Mastery. And someone once said to me, look, Business Mastery and Tony Robbins and Keith Cunningham, worth the price of admission. I thought that was a pretty strong recommendation. Keith is a former capital raiser in the world of cable television, cable. He then got into real estate. He did a couple of turnarounds. He's just an old grizzled veteran with a lot of knowledge, a lot of insight. And as I was sitting at this big event, he was talking about how he had this giant net worth that had been, I think, about $100 million or something, apparently, through all of his assets and whatnot. Bottom dropped out of the Texas real estate market. Boom, the guy is worth negatives. And someone was talking to him. He's like, yeah, but like, what do you do when you bought, like, you know, you bought of your business? It's not fun anymore. Like, yeah, how do you decide when you want to sell one of them? And Keith just turned around with the, the greatest response. He said, look, I've tied my self-worth to my balance sheet before. And it made me consider some very permanent solutions to some very temporary problems. And I, it just stuck with me. The purpose, and we touched on this earlier, sorry, later, which is business is for money. Yes, it's nice if you can have some intellectual stimulation. But in the words of Keith, when the price of mutton is greater than the price of wool, sell it. When you get more for mutton than wool, just sell it. It's not about you and your identity. If you have a buck in the bank, a billion in the bank, that's not where your value is derived from. In the intrinsic, metaphysical, if you will, sense, you're a human. That's all the value you need to have. You're alive. Congratulations. You have value. Let's just sit with that. Yeah. Your balance sheet is a, a measuring stick. How does this sit with the common goal that I hear that someone needs to make $10 million a year? I think 10 is just a nice round number because we're on the base 10 system. You know, if we're on the base 12 system, everyone would make, want to make 12 million equivalent. And there is something magical about the ones and the zeros. I don't know what it is. But you and I have spoken about this. I wrote it about it in my annual letter. It's pick the goal that's right for you. You know, I spoke with two guys yesterday, clients of mine, and we're talking about an exit. Part of what we've been doing is growing them and setting them up so they've got a nice, healthy balance sheet, healthy cash flow, healthy operations so they can sell for a brilliant multiple. And that'll be worth a lot of money to them. And they were talking about this deal that's in front of them. And, you know, I want to respect their privacy. But the key point behind it was one of the guys told me his personal goal. I said to him, listen, if you take deal X in five years, I want you to remember that you took deal X because it was aligned with your goals. Maybe you didn't make as much as you could have. Maybe you didn't become a billionaire on the cover of Forbes. But your goal is X. And if this achieves your goal of X, take it. That's it. Take it and feel, feel fulfilled that you decided on this. Now, I remember when I was oh God, 23, I was driving across the Harbour Bridge actually on my bus on the way to work when my last ever job. And I was reading this book about setting big, hairy, audacious goals. I was like, oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to have a net worth of $150 million by the time I'm 30. Yeah, very audacious goal. Very sexy sounding goal. The only reason I got there was I somehow went from 75 million, thought that wasn't enough, and went to 150 million. Here I am, a graphic designer, pulling a number quite literally out of my ass with no understanding of what it would take to get there, no understanding of how to really make that jump. And then I just was like, this is my goal. And I just, I became obsessive about it. And of course I never got there because I didn't know what I was doing. It was ridiculous. And I think that's the thing is you've got to ask yourself, if your goal is 10 million a year, that's okay. But do you understand what it takes to make 10 million a year? Do you understand how to get there? And then is the trade-off worthwhile? If your goal is to have a really nice life with your family, to be able to provide for everyone, figure out what that costs. Just put the numbers down. What do I need for rent? What do I, or mortgage? What do I need for food? What do I need for holidays? What, just actually delineate the numbers. And then ask yourself, how much of that shit's just fantasy, mimetic desire, 
based on what you've seen other people want. Because I'll be honest with you, James, there's a lot of stuff that other people do I don't care about. It would be wonderful to own a Rolls Royce. That's a very cool thing. I don't want one. I really do not want a Rolls Royce. I reckon it'd be cool to have one. Not going to pay the money for it. So I think that's where it comes down to. 10 million, if that's your goal, why? What are you going to do with it? And then, you know, why and why? The five whys we talked about in the last episode, 762, just for you again. Wow, that's good. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, I, <laughs> I got you guys. But that's the point is figure out, as you and I have discussed, the goals that are yours. Because as you said to me, and I agree, a lot of people are chasing other people's goals. Yeah. Chase your own. It's like, you know, that um, do what's in front of you thing. When I was 23 is the year I went from $35,000 to $78,000 a year and got my first yep. sales job at BMW, awesome. which within a year I was the top salesperson in Australia. And that's all because I had a baby coming along. Yep. That was a classic scenario of I definitely didn't have a year's worth of expenses up my sleeve. Yep. It was panic stations and it was just hands yeah. on deck. I just had to do it. I wanted to quit that job a few times because it was very, very difficult. I remember this is a classic I was about 38 days into it and my boss, who was like this Dutch guy and like an ex-boxer, and he used to be the top sales manager for a couple of years actually, he said, son, uh, have you had a day off yet? And I said, no. He goes, you can have one off next week. <laughs> oh, geez. I mean, it was tough. And also when my baby was born, they wouldn't give me the day off for the birth, Wow! which I took it anyway. Yeah. I'm like, you only have a baby every now and then. In my case, like only yeah. only five times, but I'm going to be there. Like that was when I really had to stand up and I risked everything to have that day off. And even then, when I had to pick the baby up from the hospital, they wouldn't give me a car that fitted my baby seat. So I had to go and stop off at the baby seat place on the way yeah. and pick up new fittings to adjust because they gave me a hatchback and it didn't have a parcel tray. So I had to get an extension thing. Yeah. And uh, like they were just hard asses. It was tough. There's a good point in this, James, which is that, and this is what I talk about in you know, knowing your goals. You standing up, you're like, no, my baby is more important. This birth is more important than this job. And there's a weird part to get a little bit slightly woo here is when you are very clear about what's important to you, you're, I feel your brain looks for those opportunities, people respond to you, and people understand that, you know, this is just how it is. And it, maybe you call it a frame game or whatever. But if you take the time to inwardly reflect and consider and ask yourself, what's important now and in my next three, six, nine, twelve, what's that going to be? You will have the self-esteem to know that you've done the work to figure it out, which allows you to act in a way that builds more self-esteem and has self-respect. And to me, it's just like building a case of wins because you're doing it from a place of you. Whereas if you go and picking other people's goals, even when you achieve them, you don't really care. It didn't really do anything for you. Figure out what you want. And I feel like these things are very much uh, outside the scope of my role. I haven't studied psychology. I'm not a therapist. They're just sort of that views and lenses I hold, but I do find them to be consistent and true. Nice. Uh, when things are going well, you'll want a medal because you're bored. You shouldn't. This is just it. Do you know how many problems I've stopped people from creating by saying, are you bored? <laughs> and they say, yes. And I'm like, good, then don't do anything. Sit on your hands. And if don't just do something, sit there. Because <sighs> business is such a wonderful tool for people who have a dopamine dependency or a serotonin dependency. We want to get more. We want to go more. We want to go more. There's a reason that entrepreneurs... Probably why people overwork. Yeah. They just get in love with the game of just you know going harder, staying longer, hustling and grinding. It becomes a thing unto itself. Yeah. Yeah. So when you've got that, you have to understand that if you're bored, and this is, again, we go back to the inward reflection part of things. If you're bored, go get your entertainment elsewhere. You know, I think that's like the next line. It is. Businesses for money, yeah. get your entertainment elsewhere. That's it. When I realized this lesson, again, you know, respect to Keith Cunningham, because this is where it came from, is I began scheduling things on my calendar 
I basically said, what is my entertainment? What do I get fulfillment and joy from that has nothing to do with business? You know, live music, movies, going to the theater, whatever. Put those things on your calendar. Because then, when there's that moment of like, oh, I'm so bored, maybe I'll fiddle with it. Don't fiddle. Wait till the live show. And I cannot tell you, it's oblique, but it works. Don't make me problems. That cartoonist that has a few books, he also talks about that. You can make your money one way and you can have your fun another way. Yeah. For me, it's pretty accurate actually because I just like to surf. Yep. There's no money in surfing. And I do my coaching calls. I do create products. I do my podcasts. I'm head down, focused on it. I turn up, I do the work, but then, you know, when it's done, I'll go and watch Formula One or entertain myself somewhere else. And it's totally fine. You don't have to blend it all together if you don't want. I play Call of Duty with another entrepreneur here. We play, I think I talked about this to you already, but I play a version of it called Plunder. And it's just an opportunity for us to hang around, hang out. Sometimes we talk shop, sometimes we talk life, but it's just an easy way for us in different areas to catch up. Other times I'll go for a walk. When art galleries are open, I go to art galleries. But when you work, you work and you're done. In the car dealership, for many years, I used to play Gran Turismo at night as my release. Love it. I did Call of Duty when I had my online business. Yep. I don't game anymore, which is interesting, but I surf. So New outlet. I've substituted, but it's something completely separate. It's a switch off, zone out, flow state type thing. Yeah. This one's good. Listen to your gut when it hints at bad news. Ignore it when it's excited. Oh, all right. So I've had partnerships with people where... I would journal about what I was experiencing or I would make notes and then I would ignore it. Like, ooh, don't go into business with this person. There's something about this that feels off. Offset by, yeah, but I want to make money. And I would come back to those notes after everything fell, like, fell apart and be like, oh my God, why didn't I listen to this guy? You make that mistake a couple of times, you go, right. The excitement is exciting because it's the what could be, but it's that similar thing to you. When you hear the rustling in the bushes, you know, the cost of running away a hundred times is far lower than being killed by a tiger once. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. There you go. I remember I had to let a sales manager go once because he yeah. fell in love with a girl and it just completely blindsided him. It distracted him. He made really poor decisions. He yeah. cut corners and uh, it was really difficult because he was a good friend of mine and years later... I was able to work with him again, but the excitement just overrode everything that would have been screaming inside him saying, this is not a good idea. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, there's nine different kinds of love is what they refer to, and one of them is called pornea, which is the desire to consume the other person. And that's essentially what you've got to watch out for is when do you experience pornea? Ignore it. But really, when your gut says something is bad, trust it. And this is a, a bit meta, but I can't remember who wrote it, The Gift of Fear. Do you remember that book? Gavin De Becker, I think it was. Okay. Yeah. But he, he talks about basically is your gut's an early warning system and the value of listening to your gut. And I think there's a second layer to it, which is that when you build a relationship with your gut where you trust it and you respect it, you listen to it, even if you're wrong, again, it's an esteem building behavior. I respected my gut because it told me this is a bad idea. Not out of fear, as in like, you know, this is the other thing people say, oh, fear is bad. No, no. It's good to face your fears, but also face them from a mile away from the bushes, not from beside the bush. Like, you don't have to be the hero. The hero ends up dying in real life. Just survive. It might be too odd, but I've really paid a lot more attention to the gut in the last few years, partly because when I did my DNA as part of a series we did on this podcast, yeah. I discovered that I might have a gluten intolerance. That's right. Yeah. And it led me to changing, you know, modifying what I eat. And it's a lot to do with the gut. And has explained to me that gluten as a protein is like, if other proteins are like cat, mat, hat, then gluten is like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and it's a bit hard <laughs> to process. But 
Yeah. I'm now really aware of the food I eat. If I eat something or drink something, I can actually feel it in my body Yeah. because I don't eat processed food anymore and I don't add sugar anymore and I don't eat gluten for the most part, except for the Italian donuts at my local shop, which come from Italy and they don't give me any reaction, which is crazy. Mm. I've also built up my gut strength through you know, eating oats yeah. and green things and whatever. So I've got these amazing clients who advise me and it's been years now. But I'm really big on this gut thing. I'll go to the extent that it's not just a feeling. In my case, I have a strong knowing. Mm. I have a very strong knowing. Yeah. I just know things. Yep, yep. And I don't know how, you know, if that falls into paranormal or no, no. Uh, what if like, it's a very strong intuition and I have a super acute sense of things now. I, I don't know if it's because I surf or because I get good sleep or whatever. Or if I'm just full of shit. No, no. Or if it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, whatever it is, mm. I'm just feeling extremely tuned in now compared to years ago as I've paid more attention to it. Mate, I want to make two quick notes before we jump on the next one is, uh, first of all, there's a bloke out of Hollywood, Bill Silver, great guy. And he and I have discussed this many times. Uh, he brought it up with me a while ago. He's like, you know, what do you think about intuition? And you know, he knows Matt and a few other people, and there's this kind of interesting question to understand how someone sits on the scale, perceives the world. You say, well, what do you think about intuition? Does it play a role in success? And I think what you're talking about when it comes to knowing is first, quote unquote, clearing the pipes, getting that gut brain connection, whatever you want to call it. But it is like intuition is the ability to rapidly slice information at a speed faster than the conscious mind can process. It's just a, done, got it. And that goes back to that trust. And the sort of ancillary point of that is, the value of keeping a manual for you. So I have a manual for Rob, how to handle your Rob. And you would have a how to handle your James. No, I've got a life sheet. There you go. Okay. Same idea, right? It's one Google document, yep. which is tabbed and indexed that has everything in it. I've done a course on that on super fast results and it's in super fast business as well. It's my life sheet system. Yeah. But for a long time, I've kept a single note system of everything. It's even got a surfboard register. I love it. These are the things that everyone has to understand we are different, whether it's your goals or what you can eat or who you spend time with. Some people will be like crack cocaine for you, but the ability to cure narcolepsy for someone else. You've got to know what works for you. That's it. And then be open to adapting. Taking responsibility. Yeah. There it pops up again. We've come back to that a few times, haven't we? Yeah. Fear is about responsibility too, according to Rhonda Britton. So hmm. nobody knows everything. Yeah. I mean, that's just it in a nutshell. That's fair. I mean, that's straightforward. Yep. Like the more I know and learn, the more you realize you don't know much at all. It's just like you become more aware. <laughs> it's just so yeah, much. Yeah. Just let go. Just let go. Yeah. There's that Japanese culture thing again, the culture of letting go of things that we can't control. Some people are actually assholes. I think that's really important. There's this belief that everyone deserves a second chance, that everyone is good, but the truth is, in the population distribution, some people are psychopaths, some people are sociopaths, some people are destructive. Like that cat killer guy. Yeah, that guy is an arsehole. Yeah. That's it, don't. My mentor taught me to start people on zero yep. and let them build up to a 10. Interesting. I got a piece of advice once, which is, Rob, you get frustrated because you think that everyone should be at 90%, 90% of the time. You should start expecting 90% of people to be at 10% of the time. 10%. All of the time. It is about letting people earn in because that's, first of all, poor boundaries. If you project onto someone and say, oh, you know, this guy who I've never met before is a superstar, well, that shows that you've got really poor self-respect and poor boundaries because you're not easing into this and you're trying to share boundaries too quickly. The other part 
is that you're opening yourself up extremely vulnerably to people who are assholes. Now, I, I'm sure you've dealt with them. Well, I know you have. <laughs> assholes <laughs> business. Like, I have dealt with oh, have I met some? Oh, my God. I mean, yeah. the typical client I had when I was in Mercedes-Benz is a 60-year-old business owner who's used to getting his way, and some of them can be really difficult. Yeah. And a lot of them are unethical. Like, we'd go to a corporate golf day, and they would cheat. The way people play golf is the way they live life. And like you can see, they're steamrolling their competitors. They're lying with their invoices. They're trying to jag their way through the game of life. There's a great point there, which is that you get to decide the rules of how you live, how you interact with things. You know, I've walked away from things before where they didn't go my way, but I can say, you know what? I checked my boxes. I put in the effort. You know, I sought to be better. I got involved with mediation or whatever it was. I've done all the things I could have at that time. And maybe I look back and with new tools, new skills, I could have done better, but I walk away with my head held high and say, that's how I want to live my life. Well, I like this idea that the past no longer exists, so you might as well let go of beating yourself up about it. Yeah, I like that too. It's gone. It's an Adlerian philosophy. Oh, yeah, he wrote uh, The Courage to Be Disliked. Correct. Right? He was the, the inspiration for it. One of my favorite books. But that, That's a good little book. Whenever I find myself in that, because we all have these things yeah. in the past that we sometimes think about, we don't really need to keep projecting it back in our future because it's gone. It, yeah. it just doesn't exist. It's yeah. finished. Good. None of this ultimately matters. I like that. I think you said in an earlier <laughs> yeah. episode, like we're all going to die anyway, right? We are. This is the thing. All these things kind of tie together, right? Is, you know, let go of the past, that Alterian philosophy. Nothing ultimately matters, which is almost nihilistic in some ways. Inversely, I know this is ironic, but I have a tattoo on the inside of my left bicep of the Ouroboros, which is drawn from a piece of philosophy by Nietzsche, talking about uh, you get one chance to live your life in the right way, and then you're going to have to repeat that an infinitesimal amount of times. You know, I'm deeply paraphrasing here. Well, that's like um, automating too quickly. Yeah, right. So automate too quickly. Take your time. <laughs> Whatever you do on the first run is going to repeat. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. But it's a good reminder. One culture has a saying that your dressing gown doesn't have coin pockets or whatever. It's like what they bury you in, so you can't take it with you. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. I'd say that's true. But really, that's it is. The only thing that matters to you is if, okay, so basically this is a quick therapy psychological point is an experience occurs factually, you know, relatively, let's not go into Newtonian quantum physics comparisons, but a chair moves. I think about a chair, you think about a chair. Then I react to my thought and you react to your thought. And then I have an emotional narrative and you have an emotional narrative. Ultimately, just a chair moved. That is the uneditorial, sorry, yeah, the uneditorialized fact. But it's our thought about what happened that we emotionally react to. So when we say none of this ultimately matters, this is what I'm saying. It doesn't actually matter. Your narrative matters to you, but even that doesn't matter. We're all going to die. It's going to be all right. Don't stress it. Let's do a rapid fire round now. So Alrighty. sell using gaps. Feel like we have. I think we've covered it with uh, pain, problem, done. Nail first, scale later. Similar to automation. Similar, yeah. Find what people buy before, during, and after to find new channels and products. This is like the upstream, downstream. Yeah. We talked about that. Keynote. Finding about who's got your audience and yeah. getting in front of them. Think about it the frame of stage of life. Yeah. I think that's really key is we often think, okay, if James's audience is buying coaching from James, well, maybe they'll buy it from me. And look, maybe some will, but it'd be much better to say, James, I've got this ripper piece of software, like 10X Pro. Do you think your audience would like that? Because they're in the stage of life of building a business. Like It just makes more sense. Got it. All advice is contextual. There you go. You did get it covered off. Oh, I did. <laughs> Missed the context. 
I like that context and relevance. These are just so big. When I have the same thing as you, I was just winding up before, but when people ask me questions, I'm always trying to put myself in their shoes and I'm trying to empathize with them and see their situation and answer knowing everything I know that's going to be the most relevant thing for them to be better off. Yeah. Not to be reflexively trusted. Yeah, this is the authority bias. Right. Someone comes along who you look at as an authority and they say, do X, you go, okay. That's a reflex. Oh, that was my problem with a book I previewed the other day. In the first chapter, yep. he's talking about a lady called him up and they wanted him to drop everything and go over there and run and do some training. And he said, yeah, I'm on it. And I lost respect for him at that moment. Yeah. So I thought, well, how subservient is that? Yeah. And bootlicky, you know? You've got to have your standards. You know, something that I always love is you've seen Pulp Fiction, right? The character of Winston Wolf. Winston shows up. And he's like, look, how's it going to work? And even though it's kind of annoying, is Quentin Tarantino's character is a bit of a pain. He asks questions. And I actually, while he's a pain, I kind of respect that because, yes, we're in a problem. Yes, you're the expert. But you shouldn't still reflexively trust someone. Now, Winston has great self-esteem. He says, look, you know, I'm here to solve a problem. I believe this is your problem. If you want, I can just leave. That's okay. And the guy's like, okay, no, no, cool. But it's that good pushback. A little bit like my mentors start people on a zero. Yep. And look, someone could get a 10 instantly, like within minutes or whatever. But if you start at zero and then you work way up, it's like when you switch on a recording for this podcast, our microphones start at zero, then we start talking and then it starts monitoring the levels. So it can be instant. Yep. It, it doesn't take years or whatever to build up. But this guy was so big on integrity and trust and he didn't let many people in the inner circle. Yeah. So it was very interesting to observe that. I love it. So the, the whole thing about this advice being contextual and not to be reflexively trusted, you added this little thing, including this. Yeah. It's like the punchline for the, the whole series. Like everything we've talked about, you know, your mileage may vary. You've got to take the bits that work for you. You might strongly agree. You might strongly disagree. You might have no idea what we're talking about. Rob does use some big words. I'll give him that. It's a bad habit. And it's okay. I've enjoyed yeah. getting different perspectives on things that I've partly been aware of, fully aware of, or not aware of at all. I learned a new acronym in the previous episode for assessing threats. Yeah. I've definitely already used the one about the market and the offer and the copy a couple of times. Yeah. So it's really been fun. And I think a good way to finish up, firstly, let us know, where can we go and find about Rob Hanley? Yeah, best way to get in touch with me is on Instagram, which is at R-O-B-H-A-N-L-Y.com. But if you want to have a little bit more of a dig, you know, there's not much about me on Google other than three podcasts with James and a sporting of others. <laughs> that, trust me, it'll be all over Google. We're going we're gonna to own Rob Hanley for life. No. Make me a Well, I own the domain. I'm in the domain. I'm going to keep that. If you join Rob on Instagram, let him know you came from this podcast. I think that would be great to, uh, for to us to get an assessment of you know how much impact we are having, if any. Yeah. And also, Rob, talk about what sort of clients do you like working with if they're listening to this and they think you've got what it takes. You know, I don't. Just to be very clear, I have no stake in your business. I have no financial incentive oh. or reward for this Nothing. episode. I'm not on a commission. I uh, have not been paid for this. I literally saw this paragraph. I wanted to share it with our audience because I thought it was valuable. So with that in mind, go for it. Sure. Who would you like to work with? Sure. So if you've got a business that's serving B2B, as in it has accounts receivable, accounts payable, cash or otherwise, you're doing more than $5 million a year and you're finding yourself, you're stressed, you're lacking clarity, you're feeling overwhelmed, I'm happy to sit down and have a chat with you and go through your business and see if I can help. And in particular, if you're a distressed business, so if the revenue's been ticking along, but the profits aren't there or they're negative and cash flow is drying up, 
I can help you. This is something I love doing is coming in and parachuting into crisis situations and sitting down with people and helping them get both the psychological clarity they need and then the business clarity. Because if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel overworked, if you feel stressed, can't figure out what's going on, let me read the label in the jar for you. Let me fix your goal swing or do your brain surgery and we'll make sure you make a lot of money off the back of it. Love it. And if you're not making $5 million a year yet, then come and see me over at superfastbusiness.com or superfastresults.com. has got a few courses now. If you're really just starting out, that's been put up for you. If you're already making 10 grand a year, you should be in superfastbusiness.com. And uh, yeah. Rob's obviously a nice guy. He spent three and a half hours talking about <laughs> you know, for no financial reward. We're not paying him either. So it's been great. It serves you right for postings. Did you ever in a million years imagine when you put that up in a story, no less, that it would result in this outcome. No, and I think there's a really interesting point here, which is long-term gains with long-term people. Now, you and I have known each other for a few years. We catch up. We've spoken about all this context before. But if there was one thing that really sticks with me is just keep contributing. I would never have expected that we would have turned this into three podcasts, let alone one. And it's been fun to go back and forth and kind of get to know each other's experience a little better because even after eight years, long-term gains, long-term people. Sweet. Now, is it all right if we take a screenshot of this paragraph and include it in the downloadable resources for episode 763? Go for it, 763. There you go. All right, Rob, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Likewise. Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com. Thank you.